You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Can we handle the truth today? Can we? I mean, because I think in a lot of ways, we've been conditioned not to handle the truth. The fact of the matter is we're not used to the truth today. There's so much stuff out there that isn't true that we get bombarded with all the time that that's what we're used to. When you watch television, and what do we watch? Stories that are made up, stories that aren't true. And then in between those stories that are not true, we get something even better, which are commercials, which tell us things that aren't true. So to give you an example of that, I want to pick on one of my favorite topics to pick on. And some of you already know what that is. We've all seen commercials for McDonald's. And you know that in a McDonald's, McDonald's commercial, a Big Mac looks like this. That looks good, doesn't it? I mean, it's nice and tall, and the lettuce is green, and the cheese is all melted, and you can see every individual sesame seed. It looks perfect, right? So we see a McDonald's commercial, and we say, oh, that looks good. We go to McDonald's and order a Big Mac, and this is more likely what we're going to get. Now, it's not just McDonald's, because if you go to Arby's and order a beef and cheddar, you expect to get this. Look at that roast beef. It's nicely sliced and it's folded over well and the cheese is melting there to hold everything together. It looks great. When you order it, uh. Now, I'm not a big fan of McDonald's or of Arby's, but I do like Burger King. And Burger King, you order a Whopper and you expect to get this. But in reality, you're probably going to get something that looks more like this. Now, when this happens, when we, we go back to our table and sit down and unwrap our burger, and it looks like the picture on the right instead of the picture on the left, we don't jump and scream. We don't take it back up to the counter and demand that we get something that looks like the picture. Why not? <laughs> I try my best not to eat at these places, but it still happens time and again. And every time, I'm kind of disappointed when I get this sloppy. But I know that's what I'm supposed to expect. I know in one way or another that I'm being lied to, that I'm not getting the truth when I see the commercials, or even the pictures when I'm in the restaurant, that it doesn't really look like this. We begin to accept it, accept the fact that we're not getting the truth. And then we begin to expect it. And eventually we forget what the truth is like. It can be hard to come face to face with the truth, to have it right there in front of us, staring at us. But it's something that at one point, all of us are going to have to do, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you that you gathered us here together. And I thank you, first and foremost, that you sent your son, who is the way and the truth and the life. And Lord, as we Meet together this morning, I ask that you be with each person here, open their hearts, open their minds, and open their ears to hear your word. And I ask you to be with me this morning, that you use me as your instrument, not to give my words to these people, but to give your words. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
If you've got your Bible, open up to 1 Kings chapter 18. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to find a story about Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet of God, and he delivered truth to a people who didn't want to hear it. And sometimes he did it in little ways, and sometimes he did it in big ways. And this time we're going to talk about one of the bigger ways. But he's reintroducing the Israelites to the truth. And Paul described the situation that the Israelites were in like this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, he describes people who, are, who had known God and moved away from him. He says this. He says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served creative things rather than the creator who is forever praised. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And how did they do this? They stopped worshiping the creator, God, and they worshiped the created things. And this is what the people of Israel were doing. If we look through here, we look through a good portion of the Old Testament, we find the Israelites worshiping a God named Baal. Or at least it seems like a God named Baal. In actuality, there were a number of gods who were referred to in the Bible as Baal. There was Baal Malquat. There was Baal Hadad. There were a number of different deities that they worshipped, but the Bible refers to them all as Baal. And it's interesting that it does that, because in the language of the time, Baal meant Lord. But in the Bible, it means false Lord. Because when it means Lord, it uses a different word. So he's saying, you're worshipping their Lord, not the Lord. See the difference there? You're worshiping the Lord of the people, not the actual Lord. You're worshiping a false Lord, not the true Lord. And if we go back to the advertisements that we said before, these false lords look really good on the outside. In fact, Baal Malquat, who was the god that they were worshiping here, was a ferocious bull. Big and powerful. At least that's what the statues that they made of him looked like. And he controlled the thunder and the rain, and he was a war god, big and powerful. But that's just what he looked like on the outside. That was just the advertisement, not what you actually got after you put in your time and your money and your soul. So let's look in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 16 and look at a few things here, and I'll kind of tell you the story of what happens. Starting in verse 16, Obadiah, who's a servant, he goes and meets Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time. He goes to meet Ahab and told him that Elijah was coming. So Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 17, it says, When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah replies, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now here, the king blames Elijah for the nation's troubles. Did Elijah cause the problems that the people were having? No. What Elijah did was he showed them the troubles they were having. But the king automatically blames Elijah. Now, we have a tendency to do this, to shoot the messenger. Well, I was home last weekend. When I got there, 
on Friday, the weather was pretty nice. When I actually I got there Thursday and the weather was really nice. And if you listen to the meteorologist, the weatherman on television, he said, oh, we've got a great forecast for you. Let me tell you what the weather's gonna be like. And he kept saying, we've got a good forecast. I've got a good forecast. When he was delivering good news, it was we and I, I've got some good news for you. Sunday, when I left, they got about 10 inches of snow that I flew out in the middle of. But Sunday morning when he was delivering the forecast, he said, oh, Mother Nature's got a doozy in for us. Or this front that's coming through is bringing the weather. What happened to we've got a forecast for you and I'm going to tell you what the weather's going to be like? See, we have a tendency to blame the messenger. The meteorologist knew this, and he tried to sidestep that by when it's good, you know, then look at me. When it's bad, then it's not my fault. Then it's Mother Nature. Then it's just the storm front moving through. Then it's not me. But Elijah's job as God's prophet was to shed light on what was going on, to shed light on what was truly happening, not the falsehoods that were there. And that's one thing about the truth that we can pick up from here. The truth sheds light. And we know this. We know that when we read the Bible, we see things in our own lives and say, wow, I don't, I don't do that. That's something that I need to do. But also we need to recognize that there are a lot of people out there who are afraid of that light. We can look at the light as a guide or as a goal, something that we want to get to, something that, that lights our path. But there's a whole world full of people out there that look at it more like a spotlight. And that spotlight's moving around. And they're moving to stay away from that spotlight because they don't want to be seen. They don't want people to see the problems that they have and the struggles that they have and the things that they do wrong. So it presents an interesting conundrum for us. How do we as Christians serve as a light on a hill? How do we let our light shine before men without condemning them, without making that light into the searchlight? Like the light that I use when I'm at home with my dad and we go spotting for deer. We look for the deer and the deer stops and just gets scared and sits there. If we're not careful with our light, and we just blatantly run out to people and say, hey, guess what you're doing wrong? They're going to get that deer in headlights look. And what does the deer in headlights look, do after he stops for a second? He runs. And that's why we can't be a spotlight. We can't be that light that's just pointing out people's problems. We've got to carry that light carefully. We've got to carry it with love. And don't shine it on people to see what's wrong, but help them to, to look past themselves to a better way. But that's not the point of today. That's just something that comes up. We're going to move on. We keep going through the story. Elijah says, I'm not the one who's causing trouble. You're causing trouble. We get down to verse 21. Elijah moves on from talking to the king and talks to the people. It says, Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, these are the prophets of Baal. And Elijah went before the people 
and also the prophets, and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord, and this is a different word than the Baal's word, it actually says in Hebrew, If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if their Lord is God, follow him. Elijah stands before the people and says, you can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't serve Yahweh and Baal. You can't serve the truth and a lie. If we look in the New Testament, in Luke 16, 13, Jesus says you can't serve both, both God and money. Same choice. In Mark chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, Jesus comes to the Pharisees and he says, let me tell you the problem. You've stopped following God and started following the traditions of men. You can't follow God and tradition. You can't follow God and things that man made up. You can't follow God and yourself. This is a problem that the Israelites had, it's a problem that the people in the New Testament had, and it's a problem that we have today. See, the truth demands a choice. And Elijah comes before the people and says, this is your choice, and you have to make it now. You have to say, either I'm going to follow God or I'm going to follow Baal. Either I'm going to follow the truth or I'm going to follow someone's story of the truth. And we face the same decision today. We might not have a prophet that's standing up on a mountainside telling us this, but we still face this every day. When we make decisions, are we going to choose what God would want us to choose? Are we going to choose what feels good right now? Are we going to choose what we would want to do in this moment? In the video we saw earlier, there were a number of people who said, there are multiple ways to God. There are different ways to get there. They use words like, it's arrogant to think that there's only one way to God. Or who am I to say that their way is wrong and my way is right? One girl said, I'm non-denominational, so I believe in Christ, but I also read the Book of Mormon, and then I have a friend who's Jewish. Why can't they all be right? The truth demands a choice. We can't accept that there's more than one way. The truth doesn't work that way. By definition, the truth is the way. It's the right thing. It's the concrete thing, the thing that doesn't change. And we're going to talk more about what that means next week. But there is only one way. Let me ask you this. How can we be sure that Jesus is the right way? Because sometimes it doesn't look that way. Barb talked about her son, who is a Jehovah's Witness. No, a guy, brother. Your brother who is a Jehovah's Witness. And let me tell you something. Jehovah's Witnesses, they know a lot. You bring, that, you bring their book in front of them and their study book in front of them, which every one of them has and every one of them studies over and over and over again, they know that thing inside and outside, frontwards and backwards. They know those books much better than most Christians know the Bible. So, why, if they know so much, 
how can they be wrong? Or what about discipline? Discipline is something that we value in America, right? That we're, we do the right things and you know what? You meet a practicing Muslim or a practicing Hasidic Jew, they have a lot more discipline than almost any Christian you meet. Christians don't get down on their knees on a mat and face east and pray five times a day like Muslims do. They don't wash their hands at certain times. They don't fast like Muslims do. They don't pray like Muslims do. Our discipline, for the most part, compared to Muslims, it doesn't even come close. You say, well, but we're not supposed to be known by our knowledge or by our, our discipline. We're supposed to be known by our love. Have you met any Mormons? Mormons are some of the nicest, kindest, most loving people you will ever meet. I went to school, I went to high school with a kid who was a Mormon. He was one of the nicest kids I know. Give you the shirt off of his back. Nicer than most of the Christian kids that I went to high school with. So, if we're faced with that, why, why should someone choose Christianity over these other options? Or how can we say, if they do those good things, how can we say that that's not enough? That that's wrong? We go on with Elijah's story. We find out the next thing he does in the coming verses, and I'm not going to read through them, I'm just going to tell you what it says, is he presents them with a challenge. He sets up this challenge, and he says to the prophets, all right, if, if you think your God is real, prove it. I've got this, this challenge for you, this contest. And here's what we're going to do. We've got two bulls. You can pick which one you want. It doesn't matter to me. You pick which bull you want, and you guys can go first. Here's what you do. Set up your altar the way you'd give a sacrifice, however you want to do it. You cut up the bull the way that you want it and get it up there, and you do whatever you have to do except you don't light the fire. You let Baal light the fire. And you know what? I'll do the same thing. When you're done, after Baal's come down and he's consumed the offering, I'll do the same thing. I'll set up the offering. I'll prepare it the way that it's supposed to be prepared. And then I'll let Yahweh light the fire. And the prophet said, oh, that sounds great. Lighting a fire, no problem. Baal, after all, is the god of storms. Thunder, lightning, we can handle this, no problem. Lightning out of the sky, that's Baal's cup of tea. That's right up his alley. So they get started. 450 priests of Baal. They prepare their bull, the sacrifice, they cut it the way that it's supposed to be cut, they put it on top of the altar, and then, then they get to work. It says that they danced, they shouted, they sang, they took knives and cut themselves. They started in the morning, they worked through lunch, they worked through evening, dancing, shouting, making a, a terrible noise, and all the while, nothing happened. Now in the middle there, Elijah started to tease him and taunt him and, and say, where's your God now? But still, nothing happened. When the time for the evening sacrifice came, Elijah said, all right, you guys had your chance, and, and now it's my chance. Now, it's God's chance. And he goes, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. Now, this altar hadn't been used in a while. It was up on Mount Carmel, and it was an altar that had been built years and years and years ago, but it hadn't been used. It had fallen out of use. And Elijah in here says, 
I'm the only prophet of God that's left. There's 450 of you, but there's just me. Because sometimes the truth can be pretty lonely. I put up there the truth stands alone, but sometimes it can feel that way. It can seem like you're all by yourself. You say, what can I do? What can just one person do in the face of all this? So Elijah goes in and by himself rebuilds the altar. Twelve smooth stones that weren't cut, puts them together the way that they should be. He cuts the bull up the way it should be. And he looks and he says, all right, that's, that's a good start, but I really want to show him something. So he digs a trench around the outside of the altar, enough to hold four gallons of water, give or take. And he sends people down to the sea to get water. Now, it hadn't rained here for quite a while. That's a whole different Elijah story, but there was no rain. So in order to get water, they had to go all the way down to the Sea of Galilee. And if you're up on Mount Carmel, you can see the sea just off in the distance. You can barely make it out on a clear day. So he sent people down to fill up four large jugs with water, come up and dump them all on top of the altar. Send them back again, and then a third time. So now, Elijah's standing there in front of an altar that's rebuilt the right way. It's got wood on top. It's got the bull on top, but it's soaked. The bull's wet, the wood's wet, the stones are wet, and the trench around the outside is full. How are you supposed to light that on fire? Matches don't work when things are wet. We all know that. But look at what Elijah does. Elijah doesn't sing. He doesn't dance. He doesn't cut himself. He doesn't shout. Starting in verse 36, it says, At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I want you to picture this. Just think about this in your mind. They're up on a mountaintop. And it was kind of smooth up at the top. Some olive trees around the outside. At least that's what Mount Carmel looks like today. I assume it looked similar back then. And here there are 450 prophets who've been singing all day, shouting all day, dancing all day, cutting themselves, bleeding all day, tired, exhausted, and defeated. Because they had all day and nothing happened. So here's these men completely drained. They're on one side. On the other side, there's one guy with a soaking wet altar. And he doesn't sing. He doesn't dance. He doesn't cut himself. He doesn't make a big show at all. He just prays these simple words. Meanwhile, the king is there. And the king probably had a throne brought out so he wouldn't have to just stand around like a common person or sit on the ground. So he's sitting on his throne, and there's all the people around waiting to see what will happen, expecting something great from Elijah who brought this challenge, and, and he just prays. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Who, who does the work here? 
It was God. Elijah didn't make the fire come down. Elijah didn't have to go through some big ritual, some big show to make God respond. He prayed. It was God who did all the work. See, the truth has power. Power that doesn't come from people. Power that comes from God. You can be the most disciplined person on earth. You can be the most knowledgeable person on earth. You can be the most loving person on earth. But without truth, you're just a person on earth. If you're doing those things for the wrong reason, there's nothing behind it. It's just a false front. It's just a fake. And see, what Elijah does here shows the difference between Christianity and every one of those religions. And I can hear you saying right now, yeah, George, that's fine. But you show me a big fireball that comes down from heaven and consumes dirt and rocks and wet wood and an oxen. And Larry, we're not done. And I, you're not going to find that today. You're not going to find just big fireballs because God doesn't work that way anymore. If we were to flip over a few more passages, we'd find the book of Esther. And there we see God working without fireballs, without dramatic parlor tricks. And that's how God works today. See, his power doesn't have to come in the form of a fireball because it, it happens in our hearts. It happens inside. The difference between Christianity and Jehovah's Witnesses, the difference between Christianity and Mormons, the difference between Christianity and Muslims or Jews or Wiccans or any other religion that's out there is where the power comes from. Every other religion that's out there says you have to do the work to get yourself into heaven. Christianity is the only religion that has Christ. The only religion that does that for you. That doesn't say, well, it's up to karma. Or it's up to you following the tenfold path. It's up to the scale of judgment at the end. It's up to you doing this list of things in order to get into heaven. Christianity doesn't have that. Christianity is the only religion that has grace. It's the only religion that has Jesus. It's the only religion that has the cross. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes to Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. There's one God, and there's one way to him. It's a nice idea to think that all those people who worship some God in some way are going to get to heaven. And part of me wishes that was true. Because I care about those people. The ones that I've met and the ones that I haven't met. And I wish that their way did get them to heaven. But 
fact of the matter is no matter what they do, their actions aren't enough to get them into heaven. No matter how good of a life they lead or we lead, it's not enough. The only thing that's enough is Jesus. And before I close, I just want to mention one other thing. Oh, I have a friend. Sometimes we can think that we have a corner on truth, that we own the market on truth, that we do things the right way, and that any other way is wrong. That if you don't sing the way that we sing, or if you don't talk about things the way that we talk about things, that that's wrong. Well, I got to tell you, that whole idea is wrong. Because there are lots of different ways to worship Jesus. The important thing is that Jesus is at the center. It doesn't matter how big the church is, or how small the church is, or if it's a church at all. It doesn't matter what kind of music they sing, or what kind of music they don't sing, or if there's music at all. What matters is that Jesus is at the center. What matters is that the power source isn't people, that the power source is God. That people have a connection with Jesus and with that power source. And you can find that in all different shapes, all different sizes, all different colors, all different places. And if we're putting a divide between us and them over something small, something silly, something trivial, then we're more a part of the problem than a part of the solution. Next week, we're going to talk about truth again, and, and the week after that. Next week, we're going to talk about some ways that people try to subvert or, or tear down the truth. And the week after that, we're going to talk about why truth is important, not just as an idea of God being the truth, but why living truthfully is important in our lives. Right now, I want to ask you, if you don't know the truth, if you don't have a connection to Jesus Christ this morning, that he's always there, he's always waiting. It's not about the things that you do. It's about the relationship that you have. It's about finding power not in yourself, but finding power in him. If you need to, to connect with that, you only need to trust him this morning. Trust that he is the truth and that he is the only way into heaven. Would you stand, please?